Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I know you are here wanting to change and rewrite your story. You are desiring to step into the impact that you know you were here to create. I am here to guide you with the proven tools and strategies used by myself and our speakers to support you in taking radical responsibility in your life and learning how to own your choices to change your story. My name is Marsha Van Weinsberg. I am a storytelling business coach, master NLP trainer, speaker, podcaster, and seven times published author. My clients have found freedom and purpose from overcoming their shame stories and learning how to share them with the world. I am so grateful you are here. Let's get started. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 600, and I am beyond grateful to be able to share this conversation with you today. Today, we are speaking with the executive director of the Sound of Freedom movie, Paul Hutchison. Paul has dedicated over a decade to creating a world where every child can experience safety, freedom, and hope. He has personally led or played a critical role in over 70 undercover rescue missions in 15 countries, saving children enslaved in child sex trafficking. In total, Paul has been involved in liberating over 5,000 children. Let that land, 5,000 children. Paul is the executive producer of the film Sound of Freedom, which exposes the horror of child trafficking and highlights one of the largest child rescue missions in history, with over 120 victims being liberated in which Paul himself led a pivotal role. Beyond rescue missions, Paul firmly believes in stopping the demand and healing potential perpetrators to prevent the perpetuation of trauma. To tackle this challenge, Paul founded the Child Liberation Foundation and Liberate Humanity organizations actively combating child trafficking and providing healing to troubled individuals. Prior to his charity work, Paul was a co-founder of Bridge Investment Group Partners. He shares so much of his personal backstory in this episode, and he is now on a mission to donate his spare time to local charities, civic organizations, political groups, and universities. He graciously gave us his time today to share his story, his backstory, As well, Paul shares his incredible insight and analogies about fear and faith and how we see ourselves is so far more powerful than we realize. We discuss the stats, the importance of having these conversations with each other, with our kids, and the power of healing tools to support humans in overcoming trauma, releasing shame and guilt, and not passing that on to future generations. Again, I am beyond grateful to have had this time with Paul today. It was such an incredible conversation. And my ask of you is to please share this episode because the work that Paul is doing, this story, it deserves to be spread far and wide. And I am asking for you to continue to help me to share this message. Welcome to the show today, Paul. I am thrilled to have this conversation with you and to have this connection. Thank you, Marcia. Honored to be here. 
Oh, so we've already had a little chat first, which always happens. Um, I'm going to dive right in because I'm going to do a little bit of an intro afterwards. But what I really want is for you to share this part of your story. You built tremendous business success. Like, and one of the things I can share, because they're your words, I pulled them from one of your interviews, is you spent a big part of your life helping rich people get richer and build things, right? And then all of a sudden you had some major turning points where it's like, that's actually not my mission. That's not what I'm here to do. And now you're doing and creating so much with charity work. So I would just love for you to talk and start there and talk about how your mission changed over the years to do what you're doing now. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. I I um you know as a child I had a, as a teenager I had a had a poster on my wall I had a whole bunch of Lamborghinis and Ferraris and a nice house and I had a a quote that said he who has the most toys wins and you know I don't think there's anything wrong with pursuing financial success there's really not you know I I, I tell people that the good Samaritan wasn't broke and you can you can do a lot more with resources than you can without resources. And so it's okay. I, I you know, I, I tell people I use things, you know, a nice house, a helicopter, a, a boat. I use things to motivate myself mm-hmm. to do the right thing long enough for me to realize the right reason to be doing it. And the right reason isn't things. It's it's making a difference. And when you get to that point though, I still have a nice house. I still have nice cars, but but I'm able to make a powerful positive impact in the lives of other people. And for me, that transition, it actually started with a a conversation in my early 20s. I had a mentor and he said, Paul, he said, if you make a decision today that a large percentage, not just 2%, which the average person does, or three or even five, or even some, you know, religions teach 10% of your income. He said upwards of 20% of your money and 20% of your time. And that's the hard one for a lot of people. If you can dedicate that to making a powerful, positive impact in the lives of other people, you'll be infinitely more successful. And that success is not just going to be in, in feeling good and you know having blessings from heaven. It, it can be in financial success as well. You can call it karma. You can call it the universe. You can call it God. You can call it whatever you want to. There's a higher power very interested in us doing good. And when I made that decision, now I was earning $2,000 a month, right? And so 20% of that, giving away you know, a big chunk, I'm earning, keeping $1,600 a month, that was hard. But I can trace back the successes every single time in my companies to that one decision. How does, how does somebody become a, a founder? I mean, a partner, let alone a founder of a, of a $48 billion real estate fund. You're not a University of Utah dropout, right? The, the statistical probability of me being where I am is almost zero. The only way that I can understand it is the fact that I made that conscious decision to donate a large percentage of my time and my money to making a difference in the lives of others. So I was always charitable from that time moving forward. But I I told people, I'm not that charitable. I just need help running my companies and God does a better job, right? I would joke about that because it was that karma coming back that was really a big determining factor. But 
But so it was still a little bit selfish. I was like, yeah, I'll give it away so I can get it back. And a lot of the charity organizations that I was a part of were, were they're kind of networking groups for guys with money. They, they really were, you know, I, as I was building the fund and I knew I couldn't put a big poster out that saying I was paying a 20% return in the fund, I, I had to figure out how to get myself in the same room as ultra wealthy people so I could build relationships with them so I could convince them to put money in my fund. That's where I was. And so, and a lot of those ultra wealthy guys were at charity events, you know, so I was buying out tables and meeting them. So in a way, yes, I was making a difference. Yes, it felt really beautifully fulfilling, but there was a degree of selfishness that was tied to it because I was getting so much back from it. And there's nothing really wrong with that, but the real transition happened when I got involved in the child rescue work, and we can go into deeper on that. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing and for clarifying. Yes, there's absolutely nothing wrong at all with like generating and the success and wealth that you did. I think your story is very unique in the sense that you went from this extreme to doing what you're doing, but you were able, like you're right, we need resources in order to make change and to make a difference. It also sounds like maybe some of those early networking things that you were part of, were you building skills so that you could have, like really looking back, going the conversations you were able to have with people, which led you into doing the work that you you ended up doing? 100%. 100%. That's where it all came from. In fact, you know, the attorney general in Utah, Sean, was a good friend primarily because I was taking him to a lot of these ultra high net worth events and stuff as I was introducing him to people when he was running for office. And we, we, uh, we, we really catalyzed our relationship in, in, in that, in, in bringing him into those. And, you know, your relationships with good people. Um, that are successful are super important. I remember years ago, I, I had a, I got a call from a, a guy who had done a bunch of training for one of my companies, and he had done training for a bunch of big Fortune 500 companies, et cetera. And he called me up and he said, "Paul, he said I, I have a, I, I, I have a group of guys. We're going to be climbing. Uh, you want to climb Kilimanjaro in Africa?" And I'm like. Well, no, I, I haven't even climbed Mount Olympus. This is in my backyard, you know. <laughs> Why would I go to Africa and climb climb Kilimanjaro? And he said, No. He said, Well, we're we're leaving in about four months. He says, You've got to pretty much give up all your Saturdays and practice and and get in shape. And he said, It's going to cost about ten grand to do it. And I said, Well, then hell no. Why Why would I give up ten thousand dollars and all my Saturdays to go climb a mountain in Africa? And he said, Let me tell you what we're doing. He said, I have, I, I've taken some of the top leaders of these top companies that I've done done work for that have sold their companies for hundreds of millions. And he said, and I, I'm taking 12 guys and they're all going to really bond and get to know each other as we're climbing the mountain. He starts reading through this list of the guys who are coming halfway through the list. I said, now, now, now Travis, when are, when are we going again? <laughs> right? Because I knew that spending time with that caliber of people would make a huge impact in whatever area it needed to. And, and those relationships indeed turned into something beautiful in terms of some of the partners I brought on early within the fund, et cetera. And so, so getting around those people, and I tell people in success seminars, I tell them your income and your lifestyle five years from now will be the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Mm -hmm. So if you're going out with your drinking buddies every other night and they, they're broke, they, they, they got three mortgages on their house and they're on their third marriage and it's failing right now. Chances are five years from now, you might be in that same kind of a situation. So, so that was hugely beneficial in spending time with people who were where I wanted to be. 
Mm-hmm. I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I often think if I'm going to join a group, a program that I don't want to be the furthest ahead in the room. I don't. I want to learn from others, and that's really where that where that comes from. Um, where was the turning point for you? Where all of a sudden it was you were being asked. I know I've heard this, and I want you to share it. But you were then being asked to step in and do something different. Yeah, that's where it changed my entire life. Changed almost ten years ago. Um, you know the the movie, The Sound of Freedom. My character is Pablo in the movie, and the Homeland Security agent was trying to figure out how he's going to, uh, in, in the movie, is trying to figure out how he's going to quit his job and fund this, this rescue mission. And more important than that, he needed somebody who could physically be there and be face-to-face with these traffickers and pretend like he was interested in in uh, in funding this child brothel sex resort thing that they were putting together. And so that happened in real life. I had already met him uh, through the attorney general and and had helped in introducing him to some people and funding some things. And then he called me. He was in Cartagena and we thought that there was about 20 children there. And he called me and he said, Paul, uh, I'm in Cartagena, Colombia. Uh, there's not just 20 children being sold, being trafficked here. He said, I believe there's more than 50. And we've identified some other traffickers here that we're trying to get in with them. And he said, and there's other cities that have some some children being sold as well. And we're afraid that if we if we take down just this one in, in Cartagena, that that those guys will know and we'll lose those kids. So he said, we're going to do three separate cities as a simultaneous sting. He believes that there's over over a hundred children between all three. And he said, I I I need your help to make this really come together. And I said, well, how much do you need? I thought he needed money. He said, I need you. Can you be in Columbia in two days? Now, I was I was in Atlanta, Georgia at the time at a conference with a bunch of billionaire families and raising money for them. And, and I said, well, okay, why do you need me? He said, well, I have to have somebody who can effectively negotiate this multi-million dollar real estate deal with the traffickers. He said, the head one has got like 14 children he's selling. He's got connections with these others. And we need to get him to call all of them and get them to bring all their children to the same place at the same time so that we can rescue them all. He said, we believe he'll make those calls. If he thinks that the only way that you're going to fund his sex resort thing is if he can prove to you that he can fill it by having a sex party for you and your buddies with 50 to 100 children. He said, you need come down dressed as a as a wealthy businessman who wants to invest millions of dollars in something. Well, I was wearing a five thousand dollars suit. Right? I had I had thousand dollar cufflinks on my thing at the time when he I'm like, well, I I got the outfit right here. And and so two days later, I'm I'm in Cartagena, Colombia, and I'm face to face with with the darkest thing that I've ever seen with people selling children. And I'm sitting at this table at this restaurant and there was this female trafficker that had this fake modeling agency. You see her in the movie and, and um, there's this male trafficker and he leans forward and he says, Pablo, I have a gift for you. He was so excited. I was willing to look at his project. And I said, really, what's your gift? And he hands me his phone and there's a picture of an 11 year old girl on his phone. He said, this is princess. She's still a virgin. 
we just took delivery of some and she's my gift for your party. And he starts going down his dark road talking about what I could do to this child. And I, and in the movie, you know, my character is uh, the Homeland Security agent gives my driver a picture of this little girl and says, you know, f- don't, don't just do it for the f- 54 kids. Think about the one and, and, and had a picture of this little 11 year old. And in reality, I was already there. I, it wasn't me and my driver convinced me to, to go down there. It was, I was already there. But that picture, I, I looked at that and I thought, this is really happening. And it, it, it catalyzed my commitment to, to participate in, in helping to fund or whatever they needed to, to find that child and get her back. And the real defining moment for me was two weeks later in the movie, we, we brought in multiple rescue missions. And so she wasn't there on the island. In reality, that child that he showed me on that phone, she was there, the one they called Princess. And she was there. They brought her to the island and they brought her out. Um, we had 54 kids and they were in a separate part of the house. And we were sitting out negotiating with these traffickers. And one of them gets up and he said, Pablo. I, I have to go show you the gifts. And he goes in the house and we could hear crying. We could hear crying in the house because some of the kids were super scared to come out. They thought this was the time that it was going to defile them. And, and he comes out and he has four virgins, super scared. There was, there was three little girls and one little boy, this little boy, they gave him cocaine that morning because he was so, he was 11. And this little girl, 11 as well, she's standing up, is no taller than I was as I was sitting down. So I could almost look into her eyes and you could see the fear in her eyes. And she was shaking. And I couldn't, every cell in my body wanted to just say, you're going to be fine. You're going to see your parents again. I couldn't say that. And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there going, oh, this is horrible. This child is looking at me like I'm this monster. And I wanted to say, no, no, you're going to see your parents. And I, I, I took her little hands and I just said, I said, it's to be in. It's okay. And she went back in the house. With, I told the traffickers, we're not time for the party yet. We need to negotiate some stuff first. And she went back in the house. And the most beautiful moment, the most trans, transcending moment of my whole life was when the, I call them the angels, came the, the child protective services people. That was a Freudian slip there. They were the angels came in with the children and they started laughing. They started singing with those kids. And that sound of freedom was the most beautiful sound that I ever heard, especially in comparing to the, to the sound of, of crying that was a half an hour before. That was the moment that changed everything for me. And I made a commitment right there. When that little girl was standing in front of me, I made a commitment right there that to myself, to God, and to that little girl that I would do everything in my power to eradicate that evil from the face of the earth. And I've spent the last 10 years leading over 70 undercover rescue missions in 15 countries. And the end of last year, I came out of it and I, and I said, okay, we're really where are things at? And I realized there's more children being sold today than there was 10 years ago. And I said, Paul, if your goal is to eradicate child trafficking, you're not doing a very good job. 
And I thought, where is this coming from? Where is this coming from? Why is there so many broken people that get to the point where they think that that's okay in any way? Why? And I thought, is it is it just rampant pornography usage? What if I'm going to fix this? I've got to fix the demand side. And so I started coming into this understanding that this problem is way bigger than just a child in Colombia that's being sold. Literally, one in every four women that we know has been a a victim of sexual abuse. Most of them as a child in their own homes. So anyway, we can go into those those stories and stuff and that transformation, but that was the moment that changed everything for me and realized, hey, you know what? Another nice supercar is not going to fix anything. It's not going to make me happy. This is where my resources need to go. And I thank you so much for sharing everything that you did. As I, I think of it, you know, when you're sending people who are trained into some of these undercover missions... They're trained in so many different things. How did you, with two days notice, keep, sorry, keep your shit together while you're like looking at this 11-year-old with not any extensive training? And I mean, be in a space of like, I understand being committed and saying, moving forward, this is what we're doing. But the moment you come face to face with somebody with a monster who this is what they're doing. How did you navigate that? I'll back up just a little bit. Right after I got that phone call and we were in Atlanta, Georgia, my other business partner was there and he must have called the co-founder of the fund, my my partner, John. He, he, John and I, John Pennington and I started the fund and fund side of the business. And he, he called me and he said, Paul, um, Don told me what you just committed to. He said, have you, have you thought this through? He was quiet for a minute. And I'm like, no, I probably didn't. Did I? He goes, this is really dangerous. These guys are selling children. They will, they will kill you in a heartbeat if they knew who you were. This is really dangerous. He said, you're set. You, you could, you, you've worked hard your whole life. You could, you know, the, the way that the company is going, he said, the day will come. You could sell out, buy an island, be happy the rest of your life. And I said, John, would I really be happy? Right. If I bought an island, if I bought a yacht, if I bought it, I said, and I said, if, if I was doing something else dangerous, you and I would have the same conversation. If I was climbing Everest tomorrow, you would call me too. He goes, yeah, we probably would. I said, and when I'm 95 years old and I look back upon my life and I say, I built this multi-billion dollar company and I help, I raise, I climb this mountain and I, and I, I helped rescue this many children from slavery, which of them matters at all? I said, if I have the skill sets in terms of even just my face and my ego and my whatever, whatever it is that can help rescue these children, it would be worth it, even if we just rescue one. And he, I said, if that was my child, if that was my 11-year-old that was down there, I would give every penny I have to destroy the organization that took her. I would be willing to take a bullet if necessary, to pull her out of hell. I said, and just because the parents of those kids don't know where they are, don't have the resources we do, doesn't mean that they love them any less. And he was right. He's like, Paul, you're right. You need to go. And so I was there. Now, from a a background standpoint, I I have had some training 
you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really good with uh, weapons training. Um, I've had a lot of uh, hand-to-hand combat stuff, some Krav Maga, things like that. But more importantly, um, there was there was some good security that was there. In fact, right behind me, and this is that that moment that he showed me that picture. Standing behind me was a was a Navy SEAL, um, big guy, and. Uh, he was he was standing he was my real bodyguard and he was my show bodyguard these guys had to think that i was in town you know with this rich guy with my show bodyguards as well right and he he goes i'm going to walk around the restaurant i'm going to just make sure everything is all safe here and he he walks around later during debriefing he said when that trafficker showed paul that picture of that child he said that little girl looked like my little girl at home he said, I almost unholstered my weapon and shot him right there. He said, but I, I realized that if that happened, I, I, you know, that we'd lose all those other kids. And so, yeah, it is hard. That was super hard. In fact, when he showed me her, the phone, I, I got, I got mad, like for real mad because he, he said, I said, well, you have to bring, after you have to bring those. I said, you have, you have more more virgins? Because he said something made me realize he had more than her. And he goes, yeah, I got three or four more. I said, you have to bring those to the party. I'm, I'm very interested in, in them coming to the party. We had to, we had to get them out. And he goes, oh no. He said, they're too expensive. I, I said, they're too expensive. What do you mean? I'm, I'm paying $25,000 for this party. I'm paying $500 per child for 50 children just for two hours in the afternoon with him. He says, jefe, which is boss in Spanish. He goes, jefe, you already paid $25,000. You want to you F those other virgins? You can cost you extra $2,000, maybe $5,000 for that little one. It's going to cost you maybe $10,000 more. I was legitimately mad. I, I'm in my nice suit. I've got a $50,000 watch on. I'm like, put my hands on my chest. I'm like, you don't think I can afford an extra $10,000? He's like, oh no, Hefe, no. I said, I want every one of those virgins at my party. I said, they damn well better be virgins when they get there. They're not for you. They're for me and my team. You understand? He goes, oh yeah, I understand the stupid smile on his face. That was hard. But two weeks later, when they we met with the Colombian federal agents and they brought all these agents for us, seeing those kids for real, that that was super hard. Now, you know, from a training standpoint, you're right. I don't have any training, and, I, and I'll I'll tell you this. You know, I'm just gonna go there. Um, years later, I had done 30 plus missions, and a well known uh, influencer was there and saw one of these rescue missions, and and uh, saw he he had seen me infiltrate some of the top trafficking rings in that in that country. And, uh, and he, 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 he shakes his head and he said, and, and one of the agents that was there that really was like 10, 12 years in, in the agency, he said, he said in, in 12 years and working with FBI, CIA, Homeland Security agents, he said, the best undercover operator I have ever seen is Paul Hutchinson. And, and this celebrity turns to me, he goes, why is that, Paul? You've never had any government training. What is the difference? And I, and I told him this. I said, I'll tell you exactly what happened last night. We were out there. there we, that it was two in the morning. We hadn't found any connections with any leads, any traffickers. And uh, I told the Navy SEALs, it was a brand new team I was with. I said, guys, can I take lead? Are you good with that? And they're like, yeah, these guys said you're really good. I want to see what you do. I said, okay, you need to follow exactly what I see. 
I said, first things first, this is not a religious conversation, but I need you to understand that I believe in God. I said, most people believe in a supreme being. Some people call him, you know, the, the universe or a cloud or, or Jehovah doesn't matter. I said, God exists and cares more about these children than you and I ever could and knows exactly where they are. So if you're okay with it, I'm going to start out by asking for some help. And here we are, downtown Port-au-Prince, Haiti, the darkest, most voodoo-infested place in the Western Hemisphere. We take off our hats and offer up a prayer. And then I said, guys, now I need to understand how I see fear and faith. I said, most people think that faith is a religious thing. You go to church and you ask God to fix things in your life that you don't think are going to be fixed. That's not faith. I said, faith is, you can you can tie it into the law of attraction, which in reality is the law of creation, wherein it's the unwavering conviction that what I want to have happen will happen. The problem is most people have a hard time with unwavering conviction about anything. Should I marry this woman? Should I start this new job? Should I move to this new city? I think God looks down at these things and says, you know, you adults deal with that. He sees what's happening with these children and says, hell no. If I've got good people willing to make a difference, I'm going to pave the way. And, and I have felt completely led in these missions to find these killed children and protected in every way. So, you know, that's a, that's a bigger picture. And I can go into a lot more detail about what that looks like. but. But I believe that there's a higher purpose, not only to rescuing the children, but in truly figuring out ways to liberate all of humanity from these chains that are holding us down, that are leading us down these paths that end up with the rape of a child and other horrible things that are in our communities. Thank you for everything that you shared there. And I think there's something that... You know, maybe it wasn't government training, but it was you were divinely in the space to be the person to be involved in this um, mission for so many years. And I do believe, like, I fully believe that we're always walking through experiences that are only making our unique gifts even stronger. They are, they are helping us become more of what we're capable of becoming and what we are capable of doing. I have walked through very different things, but I can, I, I feel what you're, how you're describing faith so much because I've always felt that this, this was meant for us. We're meant to do something with this and that, that piece of it and not, and not everybody understands that like that. This is a piece, not it. People are not meant to understand your definition of faith that is not um that's not for them to understand but if you have that conviction that unwavering belief i believe that everything you walked through set you up to be the divine perfect person to be involved in this mission i felt that so many times so many times marsha i i mean even on that one i i told him guys i said i said I might operate a little, you've, you've seen the movie Finding Nemo, right? And then the second one, Finding Dory, right? She, this yep. stupid fish, stupid fish with the two second memory, right? And her, her parents are somewhere in the ocean complex and she just keeps on swimming, keeps on swimming. And finally she ends up getting there. I said, guys, I might operate a little bit like Dory tonight because I'm not going to follow logic and protocol. I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen. And, and they're like, okay, dude, well, whatever, right? I said, okay, just drive, drive. And they're driving. I said, okay, stop right there. That, that black alley, the, the motorcycle. Yeah, right there. He said, what are you going to do? I said, that guy knows something. I can feel it. 
And they're like, oh, this is a super dangerous area. We need to survey there. No, we, we don't have time for that. In fact, you guys might intimidate him. I'm going to go talk to him myself. These guys are like, are you stupid, Paul? I said, look, I don't have two weeks to find out who's selling kits. And I can feel it. That guy knows something. And this has happened on so many rescue missions. I, I got out of the car. I walked up. This guy pulls up his shirt and there's a gun that's tucked in his, in his shorts. And I'm just listening. And I pull out a $100 bill and I hand it to him. He goes, what's that for? He says, that's for you. You keep it. I said, I have a friend. He's pretty wealthy. He's um, coming in. In a few weeks, he wants me to set up a party for him. He likes 10-year-olds. And this guy's like, he's effed up. I said, no, I know he is, but he pays me well, and I'll pay you another 100 bucks if you can get me in touch with somebody who can give him what he wants. And sure enough, we were able to get up to the top trafficking rings in the entire country within that operation. In fact, so high up that we ended up taking down four corrupt judges as part of it, right? So, so yeah, it's a, um, there, I, there's, there was definitely divine intervention on all of this. And I feel that even today in what we're doing on a, on a bigger scale and figuring out how to stop the demand side, how to help people heal before they ever pass trauma on to others. How do we help people break free of their addictions that are leading them down dark roads? These are all things that, that yes, I've seen the darkest depravity of human nature, but I believe even now that that was for a purpose so that I could use my voice and my heart and my experiences to help people transform their lives to, to be better, better parents, to raise better children so that we never, ever have any percentage of our population who goes down that super dark road, which ends up in the abuse of a child. And that's that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. And I, I love how you tied this in um, because there's a lot of factors that lead to what you're looking at at this point. And when people get to this point, I've actually, in the last probably three months, I have interviewed three different survivors of trafficking. Um, what you would consider, I'm just going to say you would consider like white collar, white women, very well off. Their husbands were actually trafficking them. And the one in particular, she said, I, I feel so stupid because I didn't know and I didn't understand. And those were her words. This is not, this is not paraphrasing. And the other one is one who is like writing and sharing her stories. So she's still not even using her name. Like she's still, it was a complete incognito interview. I've never had one like that before. And then I just interviewed somebody last week who said um, she was trafficked on three different occasions. And with the third person that And she grew up with a horrific childhood, like an absolutely horrific childhood. And with the third person that she ended up being trafficked by, it was somebody she had connected with online. They were in a different country and they were a police officer in a different country. And she said, I spent seven years getting to know them. And then we had built this relationship and I went over and it took him like 48 hours to traffic me out. And as soon as I was, I went, oh my gosh, how did I, like, how did I, how stupid am I that I got into this position again? She navigated her way out in an incredibly brave, strong person. But this ties to what you're talking about in the sense that we have people who are, you know, 
experiencing horrific experiences and then they go on to be the traffickers. We have people who have been trafficked and then find themselves in the exact same situation over and over or dealing with addiction because they're, I don't know how to even feel this. I don't want to feel this. So I think the healing is really, really important. And I want to dive into that in a little bit, but I'm just curious, like what from your experience leads somebody to being in these situations on a repeat basis? And I think this will lead into why the healing is so important. Yes. So um, I, I like to think of this whole thing, not only the 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 perpetrators, but even the victims of of uh, of a chain, you know, and we that the very end of that chain is, you know, the trafficking of a woman or the trafficking of a child or the rape of a child, et cetera. Those are, we never even want to get close to that, right? Now, the last 10 years, that's where I was dealing with, you know, put guys in jail, pull the kids out of hell. That's that was that last link link of that chain. And so if we can take a look at it and say, okay, how many of those links coming together, what 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 are the things that lead to it? And can we break that chain? before it ever gets even close to that link. So what are the other links in that chain, right? And and we can we can look at things like like pornography in terms of of the the perpetrators. You know, people are like, "Oh, pornography doesn't lead to that." Yes, it does. Okay? You know, everybody listening has probably seen pornography. That doesn't mean you're going to become a pedophile, but every one of these guys ended up with a started out with a, a hardcore addiction. And anytime we take a woman from a divine feminine to an object, we start going down a dark road. In fact, anytime we commoditize another person, man or woman, or look at them anything less than the, than the divine masculine feminine that they are, then we start going down a dark road. And what would happen is these these people would would get addicted and that addicted. Now we all say, uh, you know what? I, I have a limit to how far I'll go. Really? Guess what? You, you probably started out looking at a swimsuit issue of sports illustrated, right? And then you went from there to looking at the, the, uh, the Victoria secret magazine. And then you went from there to looking at some soft core porn. And then you went from there to a hardcore, hardcore porn type thing, right? Where does it stop? And why did it continue? Right? Here's what happens is, is it's like a hardcore drug where we need something harder to have that same fix. And unless we can heal whatever it is that's driving it, then yes, it is going to continue to get harder. And pretty soon harder for some people is looking at, at you know, grotesque, like, like uh, rape videos or whatever else. For some of them, harder is a little bit younger, a little bit younger. Pretty soon they're fantasizing about things they wouldn't have even thought was attractive five years before. And so whatever those those fantasies are that they're fantasizing online that is way different from the original Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue that they were looking at, that is the depravity that now they're seeking to, to fulfill in real life. And if it's rape videos or children or whatever else, then eventually they go down that road. And so, so we have to ask ourselves where all those change. Now, pornography wasn't even the first, right? Let's even talk about the crap that we're allowing into our homes. That that Hollywood is pushing down our throats, saying, "Okay, you know, let's 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 desensitize our children to to sexuality or even ourselves if we can take that." There are so many different things, and these are the conversations we need to be having. the 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 movie Sound of Freedom allows us now to say, "Okay, these are these are things that we can now talk about." 
And it was too difficult in polite conversation around dinner in the past, but now we can have these conversations. And what should they be? Should they be talking about just children being sold in Colombia? No, it should be talking about those, those links in the chain that get people to that point. Now, when it comes to the victims, we uh, what we have found in a lot of our trauma healing is that the very same things, many of the same things that we use in helping people heal through their trauma are things that can also be used to help people not become a victim in the first place, right? Where do people become victims? It's when they when they don't see themselves as something important. If they if they have low self-esteem because of whatever happened in their childhood or whatever else or what because of what people say to them or most importantly what they're saying to themselves. You know, effective mirror work in learning to love yourself after you've gone through a traumatic event is the same kind of things that we can use to teach the children to have that high self-esteem so they don't become those victims, right? And and same, I, I we teach a lot of, of hand-to-hand combat. We bring them into these Krav Maga courses and things like this. We're doing some stuff online. What if 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 those things are helping people overcome the trauma to the point where now they feel empowered and they feel confident that that's not going to happen again those same tools those same skills could be, could have been used to prevent them from being a victim in the first place and so so and a lot of it revolves around how we see ourselves this is where everything starts on the victim side and on the perpetrator side it all starts with that person you see in the mirror right as a as a perpetrator if you start seeing yourself as you know not worthy of love and then you you push that out into other people and you have these behaviors a lot of them are whether it's on the victim side or on the perpetrator side there's a huge percentage of them that were victims as a child on the victim side before they knew anything about it and they couldn't even defend themselves on the perpetrator side the same literally one in every three people who were a victim of that kind of violence as a child, one out of every three become a contact offender in some way, either through verbal abuse, physical abuse, or sexual abuse of a child. People ask me a lot. They say, Paul, how can you go face to face with somebody selling you an eight-year-old and not have them see the anger and the hatred in your eyes. And my answer surprises them and it makes some of them mad. This is what the answer is. I have compassion for them. You can't have compassion. They're selling you a child. No, I will do everything in my power to ensure they never touch another child again. But what I wish more than anything is that I had a time machine and I could go back five years or 10 years or 20 years before they ever, ever hurt a child and figure out what the world was going on in their life. Most of them were raped as a child themselves. Most of them had a thousand bad things that happened to them in their childhood and as they were growing up. And they had a thousand bad decisions that they made because you can't just blame it all on that because there's literally two-thirds of all people who had a difficult childhood who never pass it on. So that's no justification. But what if, what if we could take those people and help them heal? Now, we don't have a time machine, but what we do have is hundreds of millions of people who have dealt with that kind of trauma as children. That if they don't get the help that they need, that that trauma will be passed on. 
what if we could help them in their adolescent years, in their 20s, before they ever even have kids of their own, and get them that help to release that, not define themselves by the person that did something to them as a child, or even the bad decisions they made of their past, not define themselves by that. Step into a new light of healing. I believe that that will rescue millions of children. I I could not agree more. And I love how you've shared that because you talk a lot about um, our worthiness, our self-worth, how we see ourselves. Like it really does play a factor in everything that we're doing, what we say yes and no to, how we show up, how we carry ourselves, how we treat others, because really how we see ourselves if there's a lot of anger and disgust and um, very low feelings of self-worth, it's very tough to turn around and treat others well because it's it just comes from us. Every single thing we do, how we show up comes from us. And something that I heard you say that spoke actually even more deeply to me than I, I wasn't expecting it and I loved it is this piece on compassion. And how we can't have compassion and judgment don't go together. And so many people, I have been in the experience of having tremendous judgment and criticism. And so I know what judgment feels like. And I would like to say I never judge anybody, but I'm also not a liar either. So, it, But I catch it and I catch it and I have one phrase. And the phrase is that I'm not walking in their shoes. And if I'm not walking in their shoes, I have no business saying what I would or would not do. Because if I'm not walking in their shoes, I don't know. And so I've heard you share, and I would just love for you to share a piece of this part about compassion, because it goes all the way through. We don't know what somebody would do and, and how sometimes they are giving up one of their kids because they're trying to feed the others. I'm not justifying. I'm just, it's just facts. So there's a piece of compassion that I love that you share that I think is incredibly important. Here's what I've realized, Marsha. I've, I've come to an understanding that if I, and this goes right in line with what you said about walking in their shoes. I've come to a clear understanding in my life that if I am ever, ever judging another human being, whether it's for selling me an eight-year-old or, or cutting me off on the freeway. If I'm ever judging another human being, there is a 100% chance that I don't have enough information to make that judgment, right? I don't know if that guy cutting me off on the freeway, I don't know if his, his daughter's just gotten an accident, she's in the hospital and he's rushing to go, go get her. He might just be an a-hole. I don't know, right? But I can't judge him because I don't know right i don't know if that if that person that's selling me a child if he if he was raped as a child or what i mean there's a thousand bad things that probably happened to them it doesn't justify them hurting another person okay and and it's important to understand that you can you can put somebody in prison from a place of compassion it doesn't have to be from a place of anger and hatred you can do so from a place of compassion compassion for protecting the victims past and future, and a compassion for the perpetrator as well to ensure that they are in a place, a safe space to work out their own salvation, to work out their own issues, whatever it is that they need to work through so that they don't end up going down even a darker road where I have to pull out a gun and shoot them in the head, right? And so bottom line is I can 
I can put parameters in place. I can create safety for victims. I can I can put people behind bars and we can we can find those perpetrators and protect the children. We can do so from a place of compassion. And we we don't have to be judgmental all the time. I think that that unfortunately we as a society have been taught division. We have been taught to hate. We have been taught racism. We've been taught to judge. We have been taught to feel all this guilt. Yes, I feel guilty for the things that I have done in my past, but I can release that. Holding on to it and reliving it over and over again is actually a form of faith in reverse. What people don't understand is that fear and faith cannot exist in the same person at the same time, because in a way, they're the same power, right? That people who believe bad things will happen to them actually attract that into their lives. People who believe that good things attract them. So rather than dwelling on your past and feeling guilty and judging yourself, instead, get a clear visual image of the person you really want to be. That, that husband or wife of integrity, that mother or father that's leading with love, those, those, that clear understanding, that vision, take the crap of your past and say, okay, I've learned from that. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to judge my, I'm not going to sit here and just wallow in this negativity. Instead, I'm going to release it, realize that I'm not defined by what happened to me or even the things that I did. That is the previous version of me. I can move into a place of light. I can heal. And I can, in doing so, I can help other people heal through their trauma at the same time. So, yeah, I, I've, I've realized there's a 100% chance that I don't have enough information to make a clear judgment. There's only one person in the universe that has all of the facts, and that ain't me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that they they so well go together. And I think you even faced, was there a time where people were sitting in the space of judgment of you speaking to some of these prostitutes or speaking to, and you were like touching hands and people saying like, oh my gosh, that's awful. How can you do that? I, my heart broke hurt like hearing that. I just thought, oh, that was, that's just, so that's not the first thing that came to my mind, but I also... I can't judge the person who says that to you because they're speaking from their experience, right? Yeah. I mean, the, I can understand that even those girls that were judging me for, for dancing with those, those, those prostitutes, right? And we were, and, and just for the audience knows, we had one of our operations where down in, in Mexico, there's a, there's a red zone. There's hundreds of girls that are, that are lined up there that are all just, the guys will drive by in cars slowly and pick out the prostitute that they want, et cetera. And we wanted to, to be able to give an opportunity for some of them who are being trafficked to at least know that we could pull them out right there if they wanted to. And we also wanted to give them an opportunity to have an enjoyable evening. So we, we brought in a mariachi band and a bunch of tables and some food and invited these girls to come and sit down. And we were dancing with them. And, and at the end, some of the other girls that were there that were part of the foundation were saying, oh, you know, you, you touch some of those prostitutes' hands while you were dancing. That is the grossest. And, and I can understand, yeah, their hands were probably in some pretty, pretty questionable places over the period of the night, but I can wash my hands and I don't have to put them in my mouth and catch disease and whatever, but it was the energy towards that judgment. But at the same time, you're right. I can't even judge the girls who were judging me 
and judging those girls because you don't know where they're coming from. You know, maybe, maybe one of them ended up with, with syphilis of the mouth because she put her hand, I don't know, you know, right. I, mean, I can no, make I up crazy things, but I don't know. I don't know where they were coming from. All I can do is just love them for where they are. Love the the people, girls who are trafficked for where they are. Even if it was their decision to be in that place, I can't judge them. I can simply give them opportunities to step into a place of of healing if that's what they choose. Yeah, I think that we're in a space, obviously what we're talking about is a very heavy topic. It's a big topic. I think this piece on how can we judge less is like universal. It's just universal for every single topic that we we are speaking about. Um, one thing I want to ask is for somebody who, like lots of people have seen the movie, the sound of freedom. And I love this piece that, you know, I was actually speaking to family and I was saying how I was getting the opportunity to interview you. And they're like, what movie is that? Was that advertised on, I didn't see that on, and I'm just laughing and I know you're laughing. Like, I didn't see that, but I saw Barbie advertised like a bazillion times, etc. Et so I think that um, that's one piece of it, but it, here was a beautiful part about social media. Like social media gave that movie exposure and really helped. Like you just, that's the beautiful side of social media that I love to see because it didn't, it never showed up on my TV as an advertisement, but I certainly saw it everywhere. And so I just want to talk a little bit about that part of, you know, bringing that movie to life and has it surpassed, I think I know the answer, but has it surpassed what you expected it to do? Well. Actually, you'll be surprised at the answer. Okay. The reason why we did the movie was to create a movement. I'm actually not surprised. I'm grateful, super grateful, because I I believe that um, that all the angels of the universe wanted us to have these conversations. And um, and there's whatever is needed to eradicate child trafficking. So, you know, in the beginning, I'm, I'm the primary investor in the film and, and, uh, uh, for you have, who have seen it, my role is Pablo, you know, I'm the one that halfway through the Homeland Security agents, like, okay, if we could convince Pablo to help fund this and rescue and, and be there. And so, um, that was super special to be a part of that. And when we, when we, realized that that story and others, we took eight different rescue stories and put them together in this. In fact, in reality, there's hundreds of unsung heroes that we depicted in only a few characters in this film as well. That, uh, you know, the the jungle scene, um, that didn't happen in Colombia. It wasn't after that little girl. It was a completely, it was a, it was a little boy. It was a completely different team. But all those things really happened, right? And so we, we, we want to give a shout out for all of the beautiful unsung heroes that were a part of those, those rescue missions. Um, but in terms of bringing this message to the world, we realized that the only way to do so was to the people by the people. It was it was cut off on all fronts by big media, big Hollywood. Um, the guys who wanted to dictate what your family gets to pay attention to and what narrative they want to push, um, that was right from the very beginning. 
it was nine years ago when we first went into Sony and Lionsgate and Paramount. And some of them were interested in the story, but they wanted full control. They wanted the ability to, you know, put me and the Homeland Security agent in a gay sex scene in the middle of the movie if that's what they wanted to do. Well, you know what? That didn't happen. Right. And and then and and they could have they could have changed the storyline whatever they wanted. And they could have tabled it for 20 years, never put it out. So we decided, okay, we have to do it ourselves. I, I was the first money in. I paid for all of the, the script and the build out, et cetera. Then we brought in some other families to help. Um, but even then, after it was completely finished five years ago, five years ago, let that sink in. It was completely finished as you see it today, five years ago. And we got shut down everywhere. I mean, the the network that brought us cuties, a bunch of 10-year-olds dancing like strippers, turned us down to put on their network, right? I mean, this is this is the kind of crap that we're being fed. And, and so it's super beautiful to see this movement of good people getting behind this movie and saying, you know what? I need to take my friends. I need to buy out a theater. I need to pay it forward with more tickets because this message needs to be heard. Now, the challenge that I have right now is the majority of people who watched the film were, were following a lot of their, their right-wing stuff. This is not a political thing. This is as important for the center, for the left, for the right, for all of us. It doesn't matter. These children are not political. And this is, this is something that we need to understand. All of us can come together on this one point. Children are not for sale one of the best lines of the movie and it just really hits in the sense and thank you for sharing this piece on you know it not being political something that i struggle with and it's not just because of this movie but just in general sometimes the level of corruption it just eats me alive when i see stuff like it just it's not even that it upsets me it makes me furious and i see it on so many levels and it's easy to go down that path of anger because we all know then nothing is going to change. We can't go that way. But we've shared so many different stats and things that you've done. This is not a problem that is just in third world countries. And I really think this is important. This is not a scare tactic. This is just facts. And I think it's important that we talk about it because this is something that is happening in our countries. It, yeah. it actually is. So if there's something you can share on that, that um, without going down a whole dark hole for you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and that's super important. It's, it's important to understand, especially when you see the film that yes, those things all happen, but the, the majority of child trafficking does not look like that. It doesn't look like a, you know, a, a, a healthy family where a child is is taken and sent in a in a, in a container uh, ship to another country and then sold from there. Yes, that happens. Yes, the the a lot of the stories that we put together as part of the movie were things that we had either identified and rescued kids that were part of that or or had heard the stories from the traffickers, et cetera. But the things that we as parents need to be super hyper aware of is how we can really keep our kids protected. People say, okay, at the end of the movie, what do we want to do? I want to, I want to go join your forces. I want to go rescue kids in Columbia. No, don't be dressing up like Rambo and heading to Columbia. You're going to get shot. 
and you're going to get arrested. You know, we worked with very high level political authorities in all those rescue missions. The best thing that you can do is actually go hug your kids. People are like, well, how's that going to help? No, it's going to help huge. The biggest demographic of children who are actually taken and sold for sex come from from a broken foster program or, or, or runaways or broken homes. Those are, those are the ones most at risk. Now, the ones who are being groomed that are still living in their own homes, they're the ones that are, that are walking to school with, with no friends and low self-esteem. And they're, they're the perfect, perfect victim for these traffickers to identify. And you need to have a relationship with your children. Now, Statistically, there are hundreds of thousands of children in the United States being sold for sex today. Average age is 12 years old of the children that are brought into it for the first time. It's, it's, it's scary, it's sick, it's wrong, and it's happening everywhere. But you need to have a relationship with your children that is such where your, your, your child can come to you and say, hey, you know what, mom, dad, I... I don't, I don't feel comfortable when you make me hug Uncle Harry. It just feels weird. Or I don't feel comfortable when I go to my friend's house because her brother, you know, she, he, he always touches me on my butt. Or, you know, my, the babysitter, she, she's been showing us some pornography and she tells us that we should trust her more than you. Those are conversations you need to have the relationship with your children so they feel super comfortable in coming to you with those things. Because those are all grooming behaviors, and it happens everywhere. You'd be amazed at how many of the children, not just here in the U.S., but even the ones that we rescued abroad, how many of those children slept in their own beds at night, where they were being trafficked by their babysitter. They were being trafficked by their uncle. They were being trafficked by their own parents. More than 50% of the children that we rescued in, in Southeast Asia and areas of, around Thailand were sold by their own families. And in that situation, you can't take them and put them back into that same family. Now, understand, you can't just, everybody's judging now. Oh, I want to sell my kids. Guess what? Guess if you had five kids and they were starving to death, and from a cultural standpoint, you could think, okay, you know what? If we sell this one, then I can feed the rest. And you tell this this 12-year-old, hey, you know what? Um, hopefully, some, some rich German will fall in love with you at the brothel. Whatever. Okay, I'm not going to judge them, but I'm definitely not going to return that child to a place where she could be sold again, right? And so these are all things that we can have discussions as parents, but it's super important to understand that, yes, it happens in our own families, in our own backyards. You walk out in your front porch, you look left, you look right. One in every four of those homes is a dangerous place for children. So hug your kids, keep them safe, and let's change whatever it is that are the links in that chain that are leading to the abuse of a child. Hug your children, have the conversations. And as parents, if you can work on what traumas you have not resolved and help yourself to heal, then you can continue to open up those conversations with your kids. So I think that's another piece too, right? Is this, it's, I, I, there's an interesting, there's an interesting conversation happening where people are like, oh, we're ba we're blaming everything on childhood trauma now. And it's like, no, it's not. most of us didn't grow up with the open conversation and communication that we could talk about these things. 
I openly share, I wrote it in my book. I went through a pretty horrific experience at 12 years old. And that was a really difficult time because we didn't talk about things. I don't fault my parents. I don't fault anybody with it. It was just, was not open to have communication. We had a teacher when I was 10 years old who used to come into the change room while we were changing and showering. And I remember saying to other teachers, saying to something is not right with this. It didn't feel right. But it was very much like, oh, he's a nice man. It's fine. Like fast forward eight years after that, and he had been arrested on multiple charges. So the reason I say that is because there's so many adults walking around. Maybe they haven't been trafficked, but maybe they have experienced. Back to your numbers of, you know, uh, one in four. Is it one in four for women or one in three? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's numbers are all over the place. Uh, Most statistics I've found. will say that about 40% of all women have been uh, sexually abused at some time in their life. And about one in four, it was under the age of 18 years old. I believe those numbers are higher uh, because the average age of somebody speaking about their child sexual abuse, the average age is 52 years old. That's my age. I've got grandkids, right? And and I've raised my kids. I've, I've built my my companies. If somebody's dealing with that kind of trauma for the majority of their adult life, what areas has it come out in anger issues and impatience or in verbal abuse or physical abuse, et cetera, in, in dealing with that kind of thing. So, so yeah, there's a super high number with men. It's one in five, about 20% of all men statistically at some time in their life have been a victim. But of those, I read one statistic where it said literally one fourth of all of those men, it was under the age of 10 years old. That's like 200 million men if all those statistics are right. So, you know, they're all over the place, but I will say this, in a lot of our of our guided meditation, our healing um, things where we're helping people work through some stuff, it's over 80 or 90% of the women who come into those that have been, that have dealt with that, who have never said anything. So I believe the numbers are a lot higher, but you're right. We can't blame everything on child trauma. In fact, we shouldn't blame anything on anything. Blame is super unhealthy. It's a matter of saying, okay, there are some things there that I can take responsibility for that I don't have to take responsibility for, right? I'm not going to take responsibility for things that other people did to me. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to allow that to be on my shoulders either. I'm simply going to release it. I'm going to release it and move on and not, not use it as an excuse, not blame it, but also not allow it to to continue in its course of affecting my life. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, ex- I couldn't agree more. And when I shifted from blame, and I can see this in so many people, when you shift from blame, you move into ownership. And all that means is that you start to take responsibility for how you respond, for how you show up, for what you do next. And that's where change comes from. There's no change that happens when we're in the blame energy. Like we literally keep ourselves stuck there. And so that's a big shift that happens. Um, You are dedicating your life to healing and to supporting people and creating healing retreats. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing now? Yeah. So um, we still have that the Child Liberation Foundation, go to liberatechildren.org is is still funding rescue missions from guys that I'm not on those missions anymore, but we're still funding those. They're funding some, some build out of some liberating wings. So they're focusing a lot more on on healing now. And those liberating wings are are physical wings on some of the safe houses of the the, the that we've worked with that they're 
They're putting together these these expansions specifically for healing and um, you know, a lot of different types of healing and stuff for the kids, everything from from breath work to to art therapy, et cetera, et cetera. So um, and then I started um my new focus, I call it liberating humanity. All of my my social media, everything is just liberating.humanity. Uh, we bought the website uh, liberating hyphen humanity and and uh and and we're putting together a lot of tools allowing people to to get some I'm, I'm partnering with anybody who if there's anybody listening who has an amazing program that helps people work through their their trauma um build their self-esteem working through breath work um uh, personal confidence anything that are that could be considered a link in that chain if we can give people the tools they need to overcome those things and to move forward and to live a healthy, happy life. That's that's all things that we're putting together. And and then yes, we have uh um we're looking at some some uh uh some well first of all I'm investing in some other films. I have a few in fact we're bringing some crowdfunding stuff together that are going to help with some of those that I think are going to do as good or better than this one. Some other true stories and now we have the the momentum and the the resources behind us to make those successful. We're also um, helping people get plugged into to fully immersive transformational healing experiences. A lot of those ones we're doing down in in uh, in Costa Rica and Peru and Mexico and areas that we're expanding that and giving people the opportunity to come and just release their trauma and work through some things with us there as well. Mm, I I love that. And I think it is so empowering to help people to heal, to bring bring them to a space of, you know, maybe they do use the voice one day, maybe they do share their story, maybe they do open it up, this conversation, because then it continues to show others that I'm not the only person who experienced this. Again, you and I spoke briefly before we started. I just would love to hear your take on shame, guilt, those emotions, what they can do to us and what can happen when we, when we could learn how to release them. Well, you, you touched briefly on, on, uh, on blame and I 100% agree with you. You, that it's one of the most disempowering of, of all emotions because you, you give up your ability to do anything about it when you're, when you're blaming other people, it, there's no, there's no power, there's no empowerment there and, in just pointing fingers and other people. But, um, unfortunately, uh, shame and guilt are just as detrimental to our happiness and our growth and our our progression you know when we're when we're looking at ourselves in the mirror and seeing that that version of yourself that you were um that you don't that you're not that person anymore holding on to that shame holding on to those those negative emotions uh that super low vibration energy prevents us from moving forward and living the the life that we want back to that whole fear versus faith thing and that that law of attraction versus and the, the law of creation wherein everything that we do everything that we say and everything that we think is creating a world of abundance or a world of scarcity, a world of joy or a world of pain. There is there is so much to be said 
for the fact that we are all creators of our future. And if we're holding on to the to those chains. Now, I'll tell you this, you know, when it when it comes to everything from addictions to shame to guilt, you know, you can imagine these chains that are that are just anchored to this negative dark past of our life. Guess what? There's no shackles on those chains, right? Your your wrists are not permanently attached. People are holding on to them with their own hands. And they're they're going, wow, I'd love to be into that place of light and truth and healing. But these chains are holding me back. Guess what? They are because you're holding on to them, right? Release them. Simply release the, the shame, release the guilt, release the blame. It's a choice. And in doing so, you can begin to walk into this new version of yourself and and that is not defined by what's behind you. So powerful. So many of us are in cages looking for someone else to give us the key when it's like either you're holding the key or the door's open. Like it's yeah. it's actually not a cage. Exactly. It's a cage. Yeah. Oh, I could talk to you forever. I love the work that you're doing. I am beyond grateful that I had the opportunity to have you here. And I'm sure it won't be our last conversation. I'll put that out in the universe. And um, I would love to ask you, what lesson in life are you most grateful for? Oh, there's a whole bunch of those. Probably the one that I'm most grateful for is, is the understanding that the new version of me and the new version of you can be completely different from the old version. I'll say this. I, I wasn't always Paul Hutchinson. You know, 10 years ago, I was Paul effing Hutchinson, right? I had built a multi-billion dollar company. I had the biggest parties on the in the state and you know if if you were a senator or whatever and if you weren't invited to my party you weren't cool enough you know and and that that was the kind of energy that I was living in and I'm super grateful for the lessons that I have learned over the last 10 years in this work of anti-child trafficking and seeing the the darkest depravity of human nature and where it can lead, where that kind of egotistical energy can lead on all fronts in destroying lives. And I'm just grateful. I'm grateful for that lesson of being able to do mere work on myself and move forward from that into a place where I could use my heart, my voice, and my resources to truly make a powerful, positive impact in the lives of other people. And we are so grateful that you have done that and that you're showing up and allowing yourself to be seen and sharing your story and what you're here doing. Because I just, there's something that I want I, I always finish the interview on that question, but I just want to ask this question. If you can go back and somebody is listening to this and maybe there was a younger version of Paul that you look back and think like, I am such a different person now. I'm grateful for who I was. I learned so much. Someone is thinking, okay, but I'm really not anybody important or I'm really not anyone big. Like, how can I do something so big and impactful in the world? What would you say to them? First of all, if you knew who you are, and if you knew who you were before you came to this place on earth, if you really knew, you would never say, I'm not somebody that important. Understand that 
it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the size of your bank account is. It doesn't matter what the size of your social media following is. Those things are completely irrelevant. Every single person, and this is important too, in how we see each other, once we can start seeing each other as that, that pure divinity inside of each other and inside of yourself, then you'll stop making these excuses of, oh, I'm not good enough, or I don't have the money or the wealth or the whatever else. Every voice makes a difference. Every teeny little stone thrown into the, to the, the lake makes a ripple, and that ripple can continue and continue, and you can make a difference in the lives of other people. Start with yourself. Start changing that perception of yourself, of somebody that's, that's not worthy that's not good enough, that doesn't have the resources, that hasn't done anything in their life. Guess what? Every single one of us, we're at a point in our life where we hadn't done anything in their life. And I have so many stories of people who, in fact, I'll just end it on this one. You guys have probably already heard this. It was a great story. It was a 65 years old old man. He he got his, his retirement check. It was in the $100 something. He was so depressed. He took a gun. He took a notebook. He was going to write his last will and testament and, and end his life. And as he was writing, he thought, you know what, uh, what I should have done with my life is, and I, I was a pretty good cook. I should have started a restaurant and I had a pretty good recipe. I should have done something with that. And as he got to the end of it, he thought, you know what, I'm only 65. I haven't done anything with my life. Maybe I should start now. That was Colonel Sanders, right? <laughs> Started KFC. And we, we, a lot of us have heard that story, but, but I'm just saying that, that start now where you are. You can make a powerful positive one person. If you, if you took this year and spent this year and you helped two people heal and convinced them that next year they're going to help two more people heal in a period of 33 years of just two people helping two more people, et cetera, in 33 years with, with that, that duplication, you've hit over 8 billion people. You by yourself have transformed the entire planet. So don't tell me that one person can't make a difference. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Such a great interview and such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you. I appreciate your time, Marsha. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. If you love this episode, I invite you to tag me on social media with your takeaways or share it with a friend. Please, if you feel called, take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. Until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life. Mm -hmm.